Good evening, everyone. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Providencia. Um, Our first reading tonight is from Philippians chapter 1. It's verses 1 to 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, Together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading for tonight is based on Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. Drew Melton a servant of Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, my good master. To all the set-apart and saintly people of Providencia, West Palm Beach, who also belong to Jesus the Christ, together with Keith and Danny and Sarah Claire and Amy and Emily and all our elders, I say to you, you are freely welcome here, where God our Father and Jesus our Master make people whole again. I am overflowing with gratitude every time I think about this community. Every time I pray for you, every time I remember you, every time it's with more and more joy. I'm so overflowing, I keep saying every time, over and over again. And it's because of what this community represents, a communion where every person is welcomed and held in their story where there is hope and confidence in the transforming power of God who planted this community and who continues to tend and cultivate and nourish it until that day when it is a mighty tree whose leaves and fruit are for the healing of the nations. I just can't get over this community. And it's right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm feeling trapped and paralyzed and angry, or I'm offering a full-throated defense of what this community represents, all of you are standing by me, partners communing in God's grace. As God is my witness, this is how I feel. I ache for you like a lover who has been torn from their beloved, like Jesus ached for his disciples and for the crowds and for his city. So this is my prayer, that the love that reaches beyond the edges of this community and pulls them toward the center might grow stronger, 
intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and practically, so that you can work your way through the truly weighty things. When that love grows, and you can work through these things, you will find yourself to be what you already are, saints in Jesus' kingdom, trees that bear Jesus' fruit, instruments of God's glory. This is not the word of the Lord. These are my words, but they're based on my study and understanding of this passage in Philippians 1 and my understanding of our little church here at Providencia. This is a boiling down, a condensing of what preaching is for me. It's an attuning of my heart to the heart of God as revealed through the scriptures and to the heart of the people I have the grace of standing with in community. Preaching cannot be one without the other. In this sense, preaching is an act that demonstrates dependence. Dependence on the God of the text and dependence on the people of God. I say all this for a couple of reasons. First, I want to tie this theme of dependence to the theme of grace in this passage in Philippians chapter 1. And second, because we are going to spend the next four weeks looking at and listening to and studying the book of Philippians and how it exemplifies our church value of God's grace. We're in a series of sermons that we have called Embody, a year-long series. And we spent the first few weeks thinking about embodying God's creativity through ourselves in our city. In the last two weeks, we've been thinking about embodying our stories and the themes of resurrection and being held in our stories. And now we're going to spend four weeks thinking about God's grace in the book of Philippians. Now, while we're studying and listening to Philippians, though, I don't want to fall into the dry pit of historical exposition as much as I find that pit to be very interesting. I know many of you might not. We'll use the prof stream to do a little bit of that historical work, and we'll expound on some of the details that we find in this ancient letter. So if that dry pit of historical exposition is your kind of thing, this is a shameless plug for the prof stream. Tuesdays at midday, we'd love for you to join us or watch after the fact. Either one is fine. Our belief in grace is a belief in a life of dependence. The word translated grace in the New Testament is one that means something like gift. And is a gift that is freely given by the giver and undeserved by the recipient. And it's precisely the significance of the content of the gift that connects the concept to dependence. It's not a free gift in the sense of like a cherry on top of a sundae or a few burnt ends thrown in with your pulled pork sandwich. Sorry, vegetarians. Or that free tote bag that they give you if you buy $100 worth of stuff at your favorite store. These are all fine gifts. The burnt ends are much finer than the tote bag, in my opinion, but they're all unneeded. The ice cream is still ice cream without the cherry on top. But the grace gift I'm talking about, the grace gift that Paul is talking about here with the church at Philippi, is a gift without which we cannot flourish as humans. 
a gift without which we cannot flourish as humans. One of Paul's statements in Ephesians sums it up well for us. He says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not from yourselves, but a gift of God. If we want to see justice done, if we want to love mercy, if we long for restoration, recreation, redemption, and salvation, we find that the source of all these good things is the giver of all good gifts, God, God's self. And none of these good things can be sourced solely or even primarily out of our own energies. We are dependent on God and God's grace. That's my first point for tonight. Paul emphasizes that he and the Philippian church, and by extension we too, are dependent on God. The most clear place in this passage where Paul says this is in verse 6. It's the verse Emily read for our assurance earlier. Another way of translating this verse is this, I know that God started a good work in you and he will complete it. I know God started a good work in you and he will complete it. This is the whole idea of our dependence on God summed up. God started the work and God will finish the work. We just have the gift of being the clay that God is sculpting. Paul makes this dependence most explicit in verse 6, but listen to all the ways he says it implicitly in this passage. In verse 1, Paul and Timothy are identified as servants or slaves to Jesus as master. And then later in verse 1, the reason the people in the church at Philippi are holy and set apart is because they are in Christ Jesus. In verse 2, it is God who is the source of peace, that wholeness that surpasses all understanding. Paul's going to remind us of that again in chapter 4. And then in verse 7, it is God's grace that has bound Paul together with the Philippians, such that he can have this phrase, he can say this phrase, I have you in my heart. And in verse 11, it's the fruit of righteousness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control that will appear again in chapter 4. That fruit comes only through Jesus. So we cannot escape dependence on God. But we try so hard to escape that dependence. Because independence, independence is so alluring. It may come under different names, freedom, liberty, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, self-determining, self-governing, individualism. But all these have very similar effects on us. They're the kind of thing that calls us like a siren, beckoning for us to stay and listen a while, to stay and be destroyed a while. They're the kind of thing that says to us, you don't need anyone else or anything else. You've got your independence. It's because we have been formed and shaped by a different potter than our creator that this independence is so alluring. We have been formed and shaped by whiteness, 
Willie Jennings says that whiteness is a way of being in the world. A way of being in the world that is driven by the demonic virtues of possession, mastery, and control. It's a way of being in the world that centers self-sufficient masculinity as its highest goal. It's not primarily about your skin tone. See, whiteness has much loftier goals than designating us by shades of skin tone. Whiteness prowls around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Whiteness seeks to steal and kill and destroy by means of possessing, controlling, and mastering. And this is the end goal of independence. Make no mistake. To be truly independent is to have no other thing wield control over you. And to have full and complete control of yourself and your environment. The goal of independence is mastery. And that goal quite simply does not fit in Jesus' kingdom. But I'm seduced by the shimmering image of the independent man. By that quintessential emblem of whiteness. I don't want anyone to have control over me. And I quite like having control over the things and the people around me. I even want to teach, to form, to shape my own kids into little independent people. Trying to control them while embodying myself a disdain for anything having control over me. As Lin-Manuel has so aptly put it, independence is full of contradictions. But it is so seductive and alluring that it can easily become our God. Whispering sweetly into our ears, you don't need a God. And God doesn't care about you, so live your life. This is the lie of independence. And it equally and vehemently resists the second thing that Paul emphasizes in this passage in Philippians. And that is that we are dependent on others as well. We're dependent on God and we're dependent on others. Or more to the point that Paul is making, we're dependent on the community that God is forming around Jesus. In addition to the fact that Paul is related to the church at Philippi by by virtue of writing this letter to them. Listen to the ways he intertwines himself with them in this passage. In verse 3, he implies that he thinks about and remembers the Philippians often and with fondness. In verse 4, he states that he also prays for them often and that those prayers are always with joy. In verse 5, he calls them partners in the gospel. In verse 7, he says he holds them in his heart. It's the language of intimacy. Which continues in verse 8 where he says he longs for them with the affection of Jesus. And these two demonstrations of intimacy bookend the crucial bond that Paul has with the Philippians as sharers in grace. This is remarkable language Paul is using of himself and the Philippians, especially if you compare it to some of the ways Paul talks to communities like the Galatians or the Corinthians. It is this small community 
that becomes so important to Paul that he calls them his joy and crown later in this letter. See, after Paul founded the church at Philippi, that church immediately became one of Paul's primary, primary financial supporters. They sent Paul money and resources regularly so that he could do his work in the region. And it's because of the Philippians that Paul was able to visit other cities and plant other churches in places like Thessalonica and Corinth. But prior to this letter, the Philippians had fallen on some hard times. Their support had started to dry up. It might have been due to economic difficulties in the city, some sort of collapse or depression. Or it could have been persecution against these people specifically, we're not sure. But whatever the issue, they had been prevented from sending support to Paul for some reason. And it was only just before this letter that the Philippians were able to renew that support. They had sent Paul a gift through a guy named Epaphroditus. They had sent him money to support him while he was in prison. See, Paul's in prison when he's writing this letter to the Philippians. And so in response to this gift, Paul has written them a letter of thanks. And he's also written them to reassure them that he is well and that his gospel work has continued even though he's in prison. He does this through this language of dependence and belonging. Paul considers the Philippians to be one of him and himself to be one of the Philippians. They belong to each other in an intimate bond of being in Christ. Paul says this elsewhere more explicitly. Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5 says this, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. But this idea of belonging is one that is foreign to us. Belonging to one another is a foreign idea to us. It's foreign because it is anti-individualism. We walk around resisting anyone else's claim on our time, our energy, our passion, our resources. Our individuality is the one greatest and highest good, and it cannot be infringed. This is the lie of modern liberalism, by the way. And this idol of individualism, that's what it is, an idol that has become our God. It needs to be raised to the ground. But standing just behind it, lurking in its shadow, is the idol of independence and self-sufficiency. This idea of belonging is foreign to us because it is anti-independence. We have been shaped by a system that lifts you up when you demonstrate that you can do it on your own. When you can pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. A ridiculous and quite impossible metaphor when you think about it. It's good to work hard. And I too love the feeling of accomplishment from completing a task all on my own. I feel the draw of self-sufficiency. 
again, I want my kids to be self-sufficient and independent, to think for themselves, no less than I want to be independent myself, no less than I want to be my own man. And there's another idol, an image rising and falling on the horizon, riding in the plains silhouetted by the setting sun, eyes narrowed, jaw set on the task in front of him. He is rugged masculinity. And this idea of belonging is foreign to us because it is anti-androcentric. It's anti-putting masculinity at the center. And it's not just these that this idea of belonging is foreign to. This idea of belonging is is foreign to us because it is anti-competition. It's anti-racist. It's anti-nationalist. It's anti-polarization. This Romans 12 and Philippians 1 picture of belonging to one another builds on the Galatians 3 idea of belonging to one another, where Jew and Gentile belong to one another, where slave and free belong to one another, where male and female belong to one another. No one is lifted up above any other. No one serves as master or possessor or controller. No one gets to stand at the center and claim the world should look like him. Or rather, one does. One does get lifted up above any other. One does serve as Lord and Master. One does stand at the center, and he is decidedly not the image of white, self-sufficient, rugged masculinity. He is instead a brown-skinned Jewish rabbi who lived a life of poverty, traveling from place to place with few, if any, possessions, who was dependent on the hospitality and resources of others, who spoke with tenderness and compassion, who offered mercy and forgiveness, who healed and held the little children. When Jesus forms the center, when he is lifted up, he will draw all of us to himself. And he will weave us into a single garment of destiny, to borrow from Dr. King. An inescapable network of mutuality where we belong, where none is excluded, but where we belong to him and to each other. I am not my own. I am Christ's. And I am yours. And so I am dependent on Christ and I am dependent on you. And as hard as it is in our culture, I'm going to try my best to see that as a gift, as grace. Let's pray.